This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's, who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hi. And with Rebecca Ford. Hi. We have more strike updates for you as the writer's strike enters its second week. And uh, some of the confusing questions from last week have been resolved. And there's also more confusion to share. Um, We want to talk about some new uh, TV shows that are out as the Emmy eligibility window ends. But there's still good stuff to talk about. And then in honor of AAPI Heritage Month, we're going to do an Oscar flashback to Flower Drum Song, the 1961 musical that had an entirely Asian cast, which, as we'll talk about, was an extreme rarity then and extreme rarity now. Uh, But first, let's go to the strike. As we record this, the MTV Movie and TV Awards have just aired as a clip show, which is maybe a uh, sobering reminder of what could be in store for the Tonys or maybe even the Emmys. Um, FYC season is not necessarily top of mind for uh, the writers who are on strike or many people who are covering it, but it is top of mind for us. And David and Rebecca, you guys have been talking to some strategists and some reps um, and also experiencing yourselves what happens when you're supposed to do a panel and Hmm. nobody shows up. Um, Rebecca, that's what happened to you this weekend. RIP to my panel. You made it sound much more dramatic, like I was there and no one showed up. You were not left at the altar of the panel. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But the day before... Um, I was supposed to have a panel that would have been a showrunner and four or five below the line people. I mean, obviously, the showrunner stepped out of doing it pretty early as soon as the strike was announced. And I, of course, that made sense. But then the day before, two days before the panel was supposed to happen, um, the studio ended up just canceling it. It sounds like from what we've been hearing, there's a lot of uh, turmoil and a lot of People who are not in WGA are sort of um, weighing the choices of, of standing in solidarity by not participating in panels. So there's a lot going on is how I would describe <laughs> what we're sort of hearing behind the scenes. Yeah. Uh, I had one panel that was canceled and the uh, coordinator for that described it to me very uh, succinctly as everybody is very overwhelmed. <laughs> and I, I think that is the dominating sentiment that really sums it all up. Um, I've had several things canceled, some that did not involve showrunners at all, some that did like with Rebecca's with other people. I think right now it doesn't really matter. There's a, there's a sense, there was a sense in that first week for sure of, I think getting behind the writers as much as possible while the rules of this are sorted out a little bit, because definitely, and I'm sure Rebecca will agree that in my reporting, it's just very clear that the rules are being sorted out on the fly, in yeah. part because the studios, I mean, 
one question I had going into this was why did they not have a better game plan? You know, because it seemed very likely that there was going to be a strike. It was obviously going to be driven by issues related to the studios and um, standing in solidarity. But particularly when it comes to aspects of promotion and FYC and who does what and how shows stick together or certain people represent the shows, the WGA hadn't, first of all, it's not really their job to figure that out. And the the folks had not really figured that their roles out themselves um, going into it. So it's just a negotiation among everybody that is still very fluid. And we don't know why they didn't work this out in advance. I mean, obviously there were larger concerns, but it does seem like there could have been some kind of plan. I think a couple of the reps told me, you know, these events have to be booked months in advance, sure. so they weren't going to cancel them ahead of a strike. And and the fact is, we we got pretty close to a strike a few years ago, and it didn't happen. So I think a lot of people had hope that the same thing would sort of happen again. You know, we haven't had a strike since 2007. So I think a lot of people just want to believe, you know, like all movies, this would have a, a result <laughs> resolution before things got really bad. Um, but obviously that did not happen. So I think there was some sort of like optimism and hope that uh, sort of bit them in the ass in the end on this one. Yep. I mean, I, I think can give people a glimpse behind the curtain on this as we're booking interviews or trying to like maintain things that we've scheduled. Like you kind of never know who's going to stand in solidarity. Mm-hmm. And for people who aren't in the WGA, it seems really unclear. And I don't think it's like a moral judgment of who doesn't. I, I don't think it's necessarily crossing a picket line. But like at the same time, I'm reading in the Anglers newsletter this morning that the uh, L.A. premiere of the Michael J. Fox documentary was canceled because he didn't want to cross a picket line. And I don't think the WGA would have told him he would. But it's all in these perceptions. like, And it just feels like it's growing more and more like what people feel comfortable doing or like what they don't feel comfortable doing. Yeah, I had a um, one of the awards people I talked to made a good point that this is one of the places there's a lot of leverage right now for the WGA. And, you know, because the fact is, right now, a lot of the studios have enough bank to be okay for a certain amount of time. And FYC is a place where they can put the pressure on and Mm -hmm. actually make an effect. Whereas, you know, we know that especially the streamers have enough that they aren't that worried right now about the schedule. So this is a place where they can really have an effect. And, I think it might sort of be working. At least we can see the ripple effect in in our realm, at least. So, uh, yeah, there's still a lot to figure out. Yeah, I mean, even among the shows that are competing right now, some of them are embroiled in production controversies for next season, like House of the Dragon or Rings of Power, which are proceeding and not shutting down, despite the fact that other productions are shutting down. Um, but their next seasons, their first seasons. Well, they've said that their scripts are finished, so they're going to go for it, which is not uncommon to do. Right. But we've seen other shows that have shut down, effectively. Yeah, yeah. And the Duffer, the Duffer Brothers, I thought, yeah. put out a really strong statement saying writing and producing for us is the same thing, if, essentially, and that we will not be proceeding until with production until the strike is over. Yeah. Um, and that's a very strong statement from what's been a very strong Emmy contender for Netflix from the jump. Um, it's also actually eligible this season for, you know, a handful of hanging episodes as, as they used to be known. Again? <laughs> yes, 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 <sighs> yes. Um, so, so you have that on the one hand. And then I think one of the struggles for especially new showrunners is we live in even now, a really oversaturated media climate. And 
this is kind of your one chance to advocate for your show. Um, the rules on press are a little bit murkier, general press, than specific FYC events and public-facing um, things. So that's all being worked out, too, and that's all kind of individual, um, as we've both seen, and I'm sure all of our, all of our colleagues have seen uh, over the past week. Um, so as we saw with the MTV TV Movie Awards, which had to pivot pretty quickly um, to a hostless ceremony because Drew Barrymore dropped out, um, award shows are another place where you can see this really obviously. The Emmys are not until September. Um, I think even the most optimistic people think that it could it could last that long. Um, but the Tony Awards are coming up in June. Those could also be really weird. Um, and I think the open question, and again, there's not really negotiations happening right now, so we're all just speculating about this, but how powerful a cudgel are the Emmys or the Tonys or something like that to actually end this? Um, well, I mean, do, do we think that the Emmys can have the power to end it the way that people say the Oscars ended it in 2008? No. <laughs> 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 I mean, the ratings for those shows are famously not good, um, especially the And Tonys. were much better in 2007, 2008. Yeah. Um, we hadn't seen that kind of swift erosion that most award shows, including the Oscars, have seen um, since that last strike. Um, I don't think that would be it. I think it would be, I mean, I just, it's just me kind of speculating, like, you know, Netflix and other streamers been like, well, we have plenty of content. We're banked through the end of the year, whatever it is, but the effects will start to become apparent to the consumer. You know, I think right now the general public is not sort of even that knowledgeable about the strike and it doesn't really affect anything about their lives, but it will eventually. And I think that, that, that could be what does it. Unless there's like some very powerful voice, be it a Bob Iger or someone like that who kind of comes to the table and is like looking at ahead of the schedule and is like, we need to get this done now or X expensive show won't you know get off the ground when it's supposed to. I do try to remember that like while according to ratings, general audiences do not care about these shows, the studios care about winning yeah. awards. Mm-hmm. They do entire, you know, months-long campaigns that are very expensive because they care. And showrunners, someone pointed out to me, often get bonuses if their shows win, or some of them do, I would say the bigger name ones, if their shows win Emmys. So their frustration in not being able to campaign, I'm sure, is also real. So it just, there is some concern, I'm sure, about the season being this deeply affected. I don't know, yeah, if it's strong enough to, you know, force everyone to agree before the Emmys. And it would have to be pretty far ahead so the show can be written. Um, So there's a lot of big question marks there. Yeah. I mean, you have to look at it in phases too, because nothing's going to happen until after uh, DGA and SAG go through their talks uh, at the end of June. And that will lead into a new round of talking points and sticking points and probably a new renewed effort to at least see if there's any kind of common ground to come to. Um, So I I kind of look at the Emmys as a really well-timed event uh, for an excuse to get a deal done because it is a major event for Hollywood, even as it's become more of a company town kind of thing and less of a national event. It does matter, to Rebecca's point, and FYC season is is arguably bigger than ever. The studios pour millions of dollars collectively into this machine. Some of these shows are greenlit for the explicit purpose of winning awards. So the, this economy is pretty central to this time of year for Hollywood, and it's shut down right now, effectively. So I would expect it to play some role, but I do not think it is strong enough to single-handedly bring these two sides to the table 
to hammer out a deal because if they're as far apart then as they are now, then it's, I don't think it would make a difference. But like they could still win Emmys. It just wouldn't be in a televised show. Right. Yeah. So like, you know, if an Emmy falls in the forest, and no one <laughs> is watching it on Sunday night. Does it even count? I guess maybe that would be partly, partly the calculation. Like they did a golden globes during the strike where they just read the winners, you know, and maybe people, yeah. maybe and no one remembers that John Hamm won a golden globe for Mad Men years before he right. finally won the Emmy because he won it at that ceremony. Right. Yeah. So maybe there is some, you know, and even the sort of very deep pandemic Oscars, which were televised, uh, are sort of in a forgotten realm you know and so maybe that maybe the, the visibility of the broadcast is absolutely part of the uh triumph of winning one of these awards if any group wants attention for their win yeah. it would be the hollywood set i i mean i also do want to point out that august september is when oscar campaigning will begin with the fall festival so that you can shut be- your mouth <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, if these if these writer directors or people standing in solidarity or the directors by then, if that also doesn't work out, can't go to Telluride and Venice. I mean, that it could be the Oscar season pressure that also adds to it. Well, that's happening at Cannes next week already. I mean, we'll talk about more about Cannes next week when you guys head there. But I'm looking at Wes Anderson and wondering, like, what his choice right. at Cannes is. And again, if you're canceling movie premieres because actors don't want to cross picket lines, like... I don't. I can't imagine you're going to get a bunch of actors not going to can. That feels like a different thing. But like again, the goalposts keep moving on what feels okay. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from. Whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo. Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Well, to go to the Emmy season that we we can see and we can control for now, there are still some new shows premiering. As we uh, talked about last week, everything everything is kind of out there that's going to make it, or at least will be done airing by the end of the month. Um, but I wanted to highlight a show that is on National Geographic. It's also, so which means it's on Disney Plus, and it's also on a variety of other Disney-owned channels, um, but you can watch on Disney Plus. Um, it's called A Small Light. It's a limited series starring Belle Powley as Meep Geese, who... You may remember from reading the diary of Anne Frank way back when um, was uh, she worked for Anne Frank's father and she helped hide her family, Anne Frank and her family and a few others in the annex in Amsterdam. And I I got screeners for the show very early. They sent it out, which should have been assigned to me um, that they had faith in it. And I was like, I just don't know about a Holocaust limited series. Like, I think everyone has their point where they're like, how many more versions of the story are there to tell? But it's really good. And Belle Pally, mm-hmm. who I think 
a lot of us remember from Diary of a Teenage Girl. Her career since then has had some highlights, but it's been kind of quiet. Um, gets this great, luminous, starring role in a really heavy story that also has a lot of moments for humor and life and romance between her and her husband. Um, it really takes this point of view that these people who were heroes during the Holocaust were also real people who, like, hot water got turned off and who got annoyed with their neighbors and, like, talked shit about their friends. Um, I kind of watched the whole thing really quickly, like, tore through it. And then I felt so validated, David, when you watched it and agreed with me that a small light is really, really good and more people need to pay attention to On it. On your recommendation, yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I felt, I think a lot of people I know have felt that way. I felt the exact same way about it. It was not high on my pile, but it, it strikes that balance that you're talking about so perfectly um, by following this one character through kind of an unimaginably horrific time and an experience one person's experience in Anne Frank's that we all know of very well. Um, but through her, you get not only a different angle, but you get these really vibrant characters um, and relationships uh, unfolding. I think this is one case where the limited series format works really well. Mm-hmm. You know, in the beginning, Leif Schreiber particularly is kind of brilliant as Otto Frank. It's the best role he's had in quite some time, I would say, and he really gets to shine. Uh, and it kind of comes back around at the end, but um, definitely in that first episode, he's he's a standout. And when you, you're starting out the show in Amsterdam and you're getting all this really rich color, this, lo- this sense of local life, this sense of things changing and getting really scary, um, it's all very palpable. It's all beautifully done, doesn't feel too on the nose. Um, it's just kind of the ideal version of what this show would be, which mm-hmm. I feel like especially in the hands of streamers of late, I haven't had a lot of faith <laughs> in these kinds of uh, topical shows. Netflix also had um, Transatlantic, which I thought was much clunkier, um, but it's a similar sort of period, aesthetic, etc. This has so much focus on character and great acting um, that it won me over pretty much immediately. I don't know if this is a real parallel to draw because the shows are so different, but I'm thinking about the conversation we had the dip- about The Diplomat a couple weeks ago, um, where mm. we were all kind of pleasantly surprised by it and kind of settled in, is... I mean, the answer it can't just be make it good um, because then everyone would do it. But I just I wonder at this period of peak TV where we all kind of feel like we've seen everything. What is the common thread of of what's capable of surprising us, and and how do we seek out more of that? I think in both of those, I like I like that comparison. I think in both of those shows' cases, they immediately present a really smart and authentic, seemingly authentic version of the way people live life. Like in the Diplomat, mm-hmm. you have. A lot of behind-the-scenes focus on diplomats, on people who work you know, in this line of work, who are good at their jobs, who are uh, have friendly debates, uh, sometimes heated debates, but all operate with a level of uh, intensity and intention that it's easy as a viewer to glom onto. I think in a lot of these show, very high-concept shows, those details get lost. Um, and these are two examples where you can fall into the world because you can fall into the many, many details of what the characters are doing and kind of root for them in one way or another. Yeah, I'm thinking about Carrie Russell smelling her armpits in that first episode of The Diplomat. Like, (laughs) you don't see that in real life. That's only for the fictional version. There you go. 
we also wanted to check in with another show that's airing now, uh, the very famous Yellow Jackets, which I, you know, we spent the entire first season really feverishly discussing. It does seem to have been a little bit quieter in its second season. But episode six, I think, gets to a really promising point. And spoilers for what has aired so far of Yellow Jackets. We haven't seen any further ahead. Um, but you're getting all the uh, main characters in the present day reunited. Um, and David, you talked to Lauren Ambrose uh, on the occasion of this episode where she's appearing as adult Van. Um, I, I mean, I don't know where you've landed on this season of Yellow Jackets. I think you might have been a little bit more into it than I have. Um, but Lauren Ambrose has been a standout, and I am intrigued on where these last three episodes are going to go. Yeah, and that last shot of episode six uh, <laughs> implies that uh, wherever we're going with adult Vanna, I think this is a character who keeps a lot close to the chest, close to the vest, and um, this is an opportunity for the show to expand on that a little bit, I would think. Um, yeah, I mean, my main qualm with the season which I think was pretty much everyone's, was you had all the adult cast members really in their own stories. And in season one, you got to see them interact a lot more. And those relationships and being able to compare them to the past timeline, which I think has remained very strong, was the real attraction for me. So seeing this episode and seeing them all finally together, and there is just this sense of, okay, shit's about to go down. Mm -hmm. uh, I was all but pumping my fist because it's they really build to it. They make you wait, um, maybe a little too long, but there is now the expectation of a payoff. So I'm intrigued and optimistic. It really does mirror in some ways the second season of Lost, which was like, mm -hmm. we can't answer a lot because we're only in season two. So we kind of have <laughs> to start just moving laterally. We're not like, like the thing isn't really, it's growing, but it's not, you know, I, I just felt the sort of shapelessness to the first five or so episodes of the, of the season of Yellow Jackets, introducing new characters, having, you know, wacky misadventures, not with the central group of people. And I, I think it suffered because of that. I don't know how to write your way out of that problem. If you want to have the show last for longer than two seasons, you can't answer everything. You can't have them. If they were together, the adults, all the time, they would have gotten some answers by now, <laughs> probably. <laughs> and that would have been too quick for the show's um, pacing. So, But it is encouraging at the end of Six that they're like, okay, good, we're... we're the gang is back together, which I think is where the show really sings, um, especially in the adult parts. I think for the the past, when they're teenagers, my still lingering question that maybe seems to be getting more answered is whether there is some sort of supernatural substance to the show. And I kind of feel like, yes, mm. or maybe that's just a sort of literary trick where it's like, this is all coincidence, but it could look if you wanted to. If you wanted to look at it that way, it could look like some sort of divine hand guiding all of this, um, even if it's just kind of nature being nature. Well, they kind of have to emerge divided from it, right? Like you have to have the adults go back and be able to like go get married and have lives. Then you have to have Lottie go off and lead a cult. So like I, it, <laughs> it makes me wonder if the teenagers will leave the woods certain, even if like maybe the audience finds out if it's supernatural, maybe they won't let the girls find out for sure. There doesn't seem to be a lot of consensus among that crew. <laughs> and and in the, interestingly, in the Lottie episode where she's the adult Lottie's introduced, you do see a kind of mid time frame where she's out of the woods. I mean, it's brief, right? When yeah. she's in the hospital. Yeah. And I don't we haven't seen that before, right? So I kind of wonder if maybe the third season is the girls who survive out of the woods when they're still young. Yeah. Um, and, and sort of how they kind of spun off in their own trajectories. I think that would be a major change to the show's format. But like, maybe that's what you have to do, because these kids weren't in the woods for like years and years and years. It was like, what, like a year and a half or something. 
Yeah, you wonder if they're going to hit the lost problem where they get too old, like Walt. Like, you know, they're all, the, the younger actresses are all old enough that they won't grow that dramatically. But, um, yeah, having them, having a season set in 1998 might help with that. Yeah. It's so interesting, though, Richard. I think you're totally right that it, it does feel like such a second season yeah. because of how much time there is to go. And when, well, how much time they would say they hope there is to go. Um, but, it, you know, when this season premiered right alongside the new season of Succession, it was like, oh, my God, the two biggest shows of last TV season are back. Um, but with Succession, you know, every episode, you feel the weight of a final season. You feel the understanding from Jesse Armstrong and even the cast of, like, giving it everything they've got, putting everything into it because this is it. And with Yellow Jackets, you do feel them holding back. I think that's mm. very clear. Even, you know, talking about Lauren Ambrose, who is wonderful in the show, but there's clearly a lot there that we're not getting yet. Uh, and she's very good at teasing that out. But it's a very different kind of viewing experience to know that they are trying to string you along. I don't mean that negatively, but to keep you invested in a much longer term arc, much more long term arc. I hadn't thought about how watching Succession and Barry week by week really just gives you the sense of like of a climax. Like every episode is just like, and that's the end of that. Like you don't know if you're going to see Jerry again. I'm sure you'll see Jerry again, but like every fight. No, a but yeah, it's has. a good example. Yeah. So like when you get something like Yellow Jackets, it is such a different storytelling format. It is. It's nice to have that balance. It feels like so many shows are ending this spring and having something that's got a longer arc in mind is um, is nice to see. Yeah. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> So we're going to talk about Flower Drum Song, our Oscar flashback for AAPI Heritage Month. And Rebecca, this was your idea. And then you suggested this last week and then on Saturday night covered the Gold Gala for us, which honors Asian talent. And there was a tribute to the Joy Luck Club in that night, which to my knowledge was kind of the second movie, the second Hollywood movie after Flower Drum Song to have an entirely Asian cast. And in your write-up from the event, you kind of have all these people paying tribute to that movie and how important it was to them. Did you think about that connection when you had the idea to do Flower Drum Song or did it hit you while you were watching everyone talk about Joy Luck Club on Saturday night? No, it. I've been thinking a lot about the connection between Everything Everywhere, Crazy Rich Asians, Joy Luck Club, and Flower Drum Song, which is sort of the uh, OG of all this. And, and the telling of sort of a modern Asian American story backed by a large studio. It was so rare for that to happen. And I really wish I was still in grad school and could write a thesis about how <laughs> this is all connected. Because Now you have a podcast for that. It's, yeah, because you can, see, you, can see, you can see that connection. And, and you, at that event, 
on Saturday, the you know the only standing ovation was when the the cast and uh, Janet Ying, who was the producer on uh, Joy Luck Club, took the stage. Because for everybody in that room, they probably remember watching that movie and being like, oh, my God, that's my mom or that's my experience or this was my grandparents' experience, which is a similar experience that many people have had with Flower Drum Song because you just didn't get to, to see that very much on screen. Um, and that was such a significant experience. I mean, Sandra Oh had this quote about that she said on stage when she she was honored that night. And she said, I remember watching Joy Luck Club and feeling grief because I had never experienced that kind of representation until I saw that. And that's that totally captures that experience, I think, for a lot of people in that room. Hmm. I was thinking of that quote while I was watching Flower Drum Song as well. And and less for the representation aspect of it. I mean, it's not my personal experience, obviously. But seeing all of these, this talent from this period and actors who I didn't really know anything about, like Nancy Kwan or James Shigeta, like people who had incredible talent who pop in Flower Drum Song in so many different ways and whose careers, like, they were varied as they went on from this movie, but none of them had the career that, you know, a white musical star would have at that point. And that was kind of the grief that I felt watching this, as much as this is a really delightful, lovely musical. Um, Mm -hmm. Just getting a glimpse into the past and, and this version of the past and of Hollywood that just doesn't exist in literally any other movie from that time. I like uh, when I watch this, I'm always like, how did this get made? (laughs) How is it possibly greenlit back then to have actual Asian actors play Asian characters? Mostly. There's a couple exceptions in in this film, but it's sort of amazing that that even happened, you know, and that I think there is a level of authenticity I was surprised by. And I think that has a lot to do with the writer of the book still being involved with the the film and with the the stage version. Um, It sounds like he may have had more... Um, say than, you know, I would have expected at that time to sort of keep things feeling a little more authentic. Um, But yeah, I think it's such a charming, even beyond all that, it's such a charming uh, story with such like great characters that it's just, it's a really enjoyable watch. My understanding is that, you know, it's based on a novel that was then a stage show and now the movie. Between Mm -hmm. the stage show and the movie, they kind of made some of the plot points a bit more obviously stated and it was a little bit a little bit less complex maybe but it is interesting that there's still so much of the Rodgers and Hammerstein DNA in this show that was revolutionary in terms of its casting and its story but like you have the Love Lorne ballad you have the Dream Ballet you have you know it's fitting yeah. into a mold and it's like see this that format was could be applied to anything and it was only ever rarely applied to stories that didn't focus on uh you know white people of the time so I went on a deep Wikipedia um, rabbit hole about this movie um, because there's so much, as you were saying, Rebecca, like the question, like, how did this get made? Why did this exist at this point? And one of the many things that stuck out to me, um, according to Wikipedia, um, which is that Anna Mae Wong was supposed to be in this. Um, we talked about her a lot when Babylon came out because there's a character very closely based on her and her career in Hollywood. Um, but she died before production began. Um, she was supposed to play the role that's played by Juanita Hall, who was one of the uh, non-Asian actors in the movie. She's... Um, half black and half white and had a really interesting career as a result of that. She's kind of a whole separate Wikipedia rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Um, but that kind of connection between anime Wong's period in Hollywood and then um, and this movie just was really kind of heartbreaking. It, it, I wish that she'd gotten to be in it, but just seeing that there was was kind of overwhelming to see it there in Wikipedia. Yeah, I feel like it would have been such a 
a high to end her career with that sort of role and be on that sort of set with all almost all Asian actors, you know, that she didn't get to experience. So that that feels like one of the sadder moments. She could have done great at Chop Suey. What a what a number yeah. that is. I know. But but how interesting that Juanita Hall is the one who sings that, given what the song is about. Right. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, and she Juanita Hall had played the role on the Broadway production, yeah. I think, right? So it did, I guess, make sense in that aspect. But um, yeah, it would have been amazing to see Anna May Wong do it. But I did want to highlight um, Miyoshi Yumeki, who plays Mei Lee in the mm-hmm. film. I mean, she won an Oscar. Um, for supporting actress for Sayonara, and that was like a huge milestone for Asian representation. And she's a Japanese um, American actor, and you know, also I think was nominated for a Tony for the Broadway version of Flower Drum Songs. She had a pretty um, incredible career, and, and I think is so uh, vibrant in this character. Like she does, there's like a moment where she tells a joke that I thought was just like so charming i don't know it's just like a dark I joke feel like these kids, a dark joke yeah. a father and daughter are killed <laughs> by a giant person i just feel like she had a lot more to do like these roles could have been so stereotypical um and i found her so charming in that role too and i just think you mentioned everything everywhere the james hong continuity it's yes. incredible. He, I mean, he's a small part in this. He's just kind of the head waiter at the the club. But like, it's like Jesus Christ! Like this guy has been <laughs> yeah. around for so long, uh, and you know, just kind of furthered in my mind. There, I know there's been a, there's been a campaign to get him like an honorary lifetime Oscar, and uh, it's like, man, he has been in some milestone stuff from 1961 on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my God! If they don't give him the honorary Oscar next year, I don't know what. Well, when he, you know, he had that big moment at the SAG Awards, I think a lot of people went through his IMDb just to kind of see what his work had been. And he's been really frank, like he took the work that was available to him. A lot of it was not that promising and, you know, was stereotypical in ways that he wouldn't necessarily have chosen. And I kind of went on another rabbit hole with um, James Shigeta, who plays um, the male romantic lead, Wang Ta. Um, He's Japanese. There are a couple of Japanese actors um, who you mentioned playing Chinese characters, which I think some people have, um, you know, properly disagreed with. But his career is really interesting after this. He takes a lot of work um, and he shows up in some good roles and some bad. He's so good in this movie. He's so dynamic. He's got this, actually, I don't know if he's, this is his actual singing voice. I know they dubbed people a lot back then, but... He pulls it off so well. And it's another thing where I'm like, God, he could have been just like a, you know, the Cary Grant of the 1960s had Mm. the world operated in a different way. And I love the two of them together. The, you know, kind of the like the Tony and Maria in some ways. And we'll talk about West Side Story, just like the very nice people at the center of the movie. And then you've got um, Nancy Kwan's character and then um, Jack Sue's character, who are kind of the like more interesting dynamic ones. (laughs) And the two couples kind of work in parallel the whole time until. I had not been familiar with this musical before watching the movie, and I didn't realize that I Enjoy Being a Girl is from this show, mm-hmm. which I only Same. knew it from a Sarah Same. Jessica Parker Gap ad, I believe, where she was <laughs> singing that song. Um, so yeah, I, I I didn't realize that like this show, it was a huge hit on Broadway. Um, it ran for a couple of years. It was nominated for awards, you know, all that. Like, I think that I I understand why it has not been performed a ton of times producers have said well it's hard to find the cast but i think there's also concern about like you know 
authenticity and, and things like that. Um, I know that David Henry Huang, the playwright, rewrote the book for a production in the early 2000s and kind of talked then about like, oh, wow. he was like, you know, it, it was a touchstone for me as a kid and for a lot of people because we never got to see this kind of thing. I recognize as an adult, it has these problems. And so he kind of went back in to sort of update it in a way and it didn't do very well, I believe. But um, mm. I, I, I would be, in, I think his version is still performed sometimes. I wonder what those updates are. I mean, I, it, it feels dated more in just the ways where it's like, you know, how you treat like a nightclub singer. Like there's like weird sexist stuff in it a lot of ways. But that, it feels like you could update that like fairly easily. Yeah, I, I'm surprised. I mean, I, I didn't know about the musical either, um, aside from just like really broadly. Um, weirdly, I knew Grant Avenue. I don't know why I knew that song. <laughs> oh, man, what a number, though. <laughs> what? I mean, it, no, I mean, maybe just because someone introduced me to it because it's so great. But um, I was like, oh, I know this song. But yeah, I, I I knew of it as a kind of attempted comeback for them at the time because they'd had a couple misses, Rogers and Hammerstein. So it's just a really interesting artifact for them because when I when I put it on, I was expecting it to feel far more dated than it did. Yeah. Um, it has that specificity that you guys are talking about, and it also just has like a an interest in character and an interest in these relationships um, that. Yeah, you could, I would think you could update reasonably well. Um, God, some of the stuff that we've been talking about shows like My Fair Lady and Funny Girl lately that have that have made their way through, for better or worse. I, I don't see why this couldn't join that class. And the way that it talks about immigration, you know, um, and the way it depicts like generational differences between immigrants and first generation, you know, American kids. I mean, you know, the younger brothers in his baseball uniform and using all the yeah. hip slang and and um, he's Filipino. So again, you know, there were, it's not <laughs> the casting was was broad, I would say, but you know, it, it's and then there are songs about it. And and to think that like this was not many years after internment, uh, not that many years after basically immigration in America was ground to a halt to stop more Chinese people from coming. And, you know, it, it's just like that a Hollywood big budget kind of spectacle like this was so forthright in its politics. And maybe those politics are a little bit charged now because maybe they're too assimilationist. Maybe they're, I don't, I don't know. But like the, the movie has a distinct political point of view that I would imagine was kind of rare-ish uh, for the time. I do wonder too if when we have this these reactions to these these movies of the time like if it also reflects the way we view Hollywood now and studios now and the general cowardice of studios to put forward strong political messages um it does feel like we could patronize movies of that period a bit but in a way these are these are far more radical in some ways than the, what Hollywood is willing to do now. Yeah, that's a really good point, David. Yeah, I was thinking about that parade sequence that pre that comes right before um, Grant Avenue, where you've got it's this it's a New Year Chinese New Year parade, but they're all dressed as like Revolutionary War characters. Like one of the kids is Paul. Rev I don't know. I don't remember the logic of why they're all dressed like they're in the American Revolution. But just seeing these like Asian kids dress like they're in the Revolutionary War, and this you know it's like the Hamilton before Hamilton. Like it's such a a bold forthright statement that, that like these people are Americans and hear, hearing all these actors and they're like mid-century like tough guy accents like very American gangster movie accents I'm thinking of Jack Sue specifically who's the nightclub owner um, and like mostly would also would be asked to like put on an accent and play a stereotypical role in other productions it's you know it's a vision of America as a melting pot that you, like you said David like studios still are really hesitant about mm -hmm. 
Okay, you guys want to hear all my connections for my thesis that I have? Of course. Yeah, this is your oral uh, exam. You, yeah. you defend your thesis <laughs> so to us. young grad student can steal this and use it for their paper. Um, beyond the, obviously, the generational conflict and like the desire to please your immigrant parents, which is in all these films. But I think, as Richard mentioned, James Hong, this was his first role in his film. Nancy Kwan is related to Kevin Kwan, who wrote Crazy Rich Asians. I know, wild, right? And Nancy Kwan played Ming-Na's mother on ER and became sort of a mentor to her. And Ming-Na obviously starred in Joy Luck Club. Oh, wow. (laughs) And Crazy Rich Asians inspired Ki Hui Kwan to pursue acting again and get everything everywhere all at once. So it is like wild how powerful representation can be. Mm. And these like finding, you know, people who are having similar experiences to you in, in this industry. So that's amazing. It's all, it's all connected. And, you know, I think there's hopefully more of that to come. Keep going, Rebecca. Keep going. I had one Nancy Kwan thing, though, because I was looking at where her career, because she, she, she's so good. And I mean, she doesn't sing her own part, um, but she's such a great dancer. She's so beautiful. She's and after this, uh, yeah, really funny. All, I mean, this, that's, I mean, that's what I'm saying about um, the Lindelow and Sammy Fong characters. Like, they're really the more fun ones in the movie. Um, but one of her roles after this was in The Wrecking Crew, a Sharon Tate vehicle, which you can see in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That's the scene that she mm. watches in the um, in the movie theater by herself. Um, so, yeah, you can watch her fight scene in a very recent movie, The Legacy Lives On. One of the quotes I read from David Henry Wang when he was talking about his version, when he was like, it was just so exciting to see all these really talented actors, you know, who are all Asian. And it's like, yes, they are very talented. And it's the kind of thing where I was watching Beef and I was like, where the hell have these actors been? Like, why haven't mm. they gotten more roles? You know, the the, the, one, the woman who plays um, Ali Wong's mother-in-law and, you know, she has tons of credits, but they're all small roles. And it's like, given the opportunity when, when that representation uh, is, you know, given money and a platform... Um, sure enough, all of this talent is already there, ready to be put into the game. And um, it's sad in a way that, like, we could have a conversation about a 2023 TV show that we could have had about a 1961 movie back then. You know, it's like, here's the talent that people kind of pretend to hide behind. They say, well, it's just not out there. No, it, it definitely is. It, and it was then, too. So let's, like, let's talk about this movie in the Oscars, um, because it was nominated for five Oscars, and I believe lost every single one of them to West Side Story, <laughs> which is, well, you know, you look back at Oscar history, you're like, how did this not win anything? And then you see what it lost, you're like, oh, I get it. And it, this movie does feel very modern in a lot of ways, but as a musical and as like a film, it feels like a different world than West Side Story. I think it's one of the reasons that West Side Story has held up so well. Like that movie feels really, really modern still. Um, I don't know. I'm looking at Best Art Direction Color and wondering if I would give it a flower drum song over West Side Story. I might, um, but that just that's a rough head to head to happen at a single Oscar ceremony. Yeah. And there were filming techniques used in parts of West Side Story that were a bit more advanced let's say then this is so this is very much feels like a later version of your south pacifics your oklahomas you know like Mm -hmm. um it very much feels like a filmed play there aren't so many scenes that are not on sets and that's true of west side story too but somehow they kind of they finesse it a little bit more um in, in west side than they do in this i think Although then again, you also think about Rita Moreno, who I believe is the only Puerto Rican actor in a major role in West Side Story. And there's a lot of people in, you know, in Brownface and George Curious's Creek and everything yeah. else. And you imagine her looking at Flower Drum Song in production at the same time being like, wait, what? Like, why did why did they get to like, <laughs> cast authentically and we don't? Yeah. 
I don't want to think what the calculation of that Whew, was, but I'm no. sure that, yeah. Because yeah. even, the, I mean, even the extras in this, I was like scanning the crowd. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, Those are all Asians. It's amazing. Yeah. Like, I, I was, it's really impressive because I just assumed it'd be like, oh, just some people with dark hair. That's the best we could do. But yeah, they did a, an impressive job for sure. Yeah. Second you look at the year, you're like, okay, I know what we're in for because it was the West Side Story year. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, Flower Drum Song is very easy to watch. It's on Prime Video. Um, you can watch it if you have a, a abiding love for old musicals, as I think all of us do on some level. Um, we didn't even talk about the the Sunday sequence, like the big fantasy ah. life. Uh, with they have the the characters jump out of the television in black and white and participate in this incredibly elaborately choreographed dance number that I wow. guess that was just costuming. I don't know how they did it. It was amazing to watch that happen. Um, so go go watch the amazing musical numbers, if nothing else. It's really worth catching up on. That does it for today's show. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, find us at VanityFair.com. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider. And on our own, I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And David. David Canfield, 97. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best description of all of our predictions episodes goes to Rebecca Ford. Optimism and hope that bit them in the ass. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the review's director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Luna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.